When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Hidden Histories. So I am with Dr. Sophie Therese Ambler, who has recently just published The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary and the Death of Chivalry. And we're in Somerset House, which is not directly associated with Simon de Montfort, but Sophie's going to tell me some of the hidden history around it and how it relates to him. So Sophie, who exactly was Simon de Montfort? Simon de Montfort was a nobleman originally from the area outside Paris and he came to England as a young man in his 20s, made a great career for himself um, as a crusader, as a military captain, as a politician and as the Earl of Leicester, Um, led in 1258 a revolution against the King of England and ended up setting, um, he ended up Um, establishing a council to govern England in the king's name um, and led his army through a turbulent period of of civil war in the early 1260s until he came to a grisly end in 1265 at the Battle of Eves. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, wow. So he's quite, um, he, he led quite a fruitful life. He, he did a lot. Yet he's somebody that people, you know, people wouldn't necessarily recognize his name. Um, and in that, we shouldn't really get confused with his father, who was also quite a well-known Simon de Montfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was his role? Well, both are Simon de Montfort, if we say that to make it easier, <laughs> and his father. Um, both did a lot, and they were very famous in their day. So our Simon's father was Simon de Montfort, uh, well, Count of Montfort, leader of the Albigensian Crusade. Um, so he led the armies directed by the, um, directed by the church to um, convert or wipe out the Cathar heretics in Languedoc in southern France. And he was um, greatly admired in his day. Basically, the best thing you could do in this period was be a crusader, um, no matter what sort of um, uh, enemy of the church you were fighting. Um, so he was widely admired for what he did, even though um, many of the things he did today would be considered war crimes. And to our Simon, who was only about um, 10 when his father was killed during the course of the Albigensian Crusade, um, his father was a great hero to him. And in many senses, he modelled his career on that of his father as a great crusader and as leader um, of a great campaign. So he grew up... Um, sort of in the guise of the of the crusade and, and his his father was a really influential figure what about his mother and his siblings mm. well the crusades were for the Montfort family a family enterprise they were all involved and they saw themselves very much as a family unit in fighting the crusade so um, the elder Simon's wife was Alistair Montmorency um, and she was with him during the course of the Albigensian Crusade. Um, Simon was only uh, about a year old when Alice brought her with him um, down to Languedoc to help um, uh, the Count of Montfort fight this war. And uh, Alice and the elder Simon's... Um, el- um, trying to explain this in a way that doesn't get incredibly complicated... So all the Montfort children were involved in the Albigensian Crusade. Um, so Simon was the youngest. He was only about young, about one year old when his mother brought him down to the south of France. He had elder brothers, Amory and Guy, who were also involved in the war. And he had an uncle as well, who was also fighting um, in the same expedition. 
so the family very much saw themselves as fighting as a family unit and they were very much in it together. Do you think that was a type of propaganda for before the crusade and through the, for the cause? Well, it was particular propaganda, perhaps for the Montfort family in particular. Um, there's no reason to doubt that that's how they saw themselves genuinely. Um, but there was a great history of the expedition, a great chronicle written to describe what they did by um, a monk from the local monastery um, near the Montfort family lands. Um, a monk named Peter of Les Vaux de Cernay, and he wrote a history of this expedition for the Montfort family to celebrate their deeds. And he talks a lot about how this family were um, operating as a unit and were completely devoted to each other as much as to the cause. And this was clearly an important work at the time, and it was a very important work for the Montfort children as they grew up, because this is the, the, the story that they would have heard of their, their father and mother. Gosh, so, okay, so fast forward, Simon de Montfort, the younger, manages to secure a place at court. He's in the inner circle of the king. Can you explain how he got there? Well, it's quite a um, perhaps surprising um, rise up the career ladder. Um, he was only in his early 20s when he arrived in England. He had a family stake to the Earldom of Leicester, um, his father should have been able to take possession of the earldom through inheritance, but um, he wasn't allowed because he owed fealty to the King of France. So when young Simon turned up, he must have been a very impressive young man. He hadn't proved himself in any sense on the battlefield or in politics, um, but he had a famous name. He seems to have had, from what we know about him later, a very charismatic character. And he obviously impressed Henry III, who agreed to let him take possession of the family lands of Leicester and gave him a place at court. And whilst he had that place at court, he managed to um, woo Henry's younger sister, didn't he? Yes, he did very well for himself <laughs> there. Um, so Simon, during his 20s, he was looking, um, he was looking for a wife, obviously, to help him establish his place um, in the world and establish his career and his fortune. And he'd looked abroad for a couple of possibilities. Um, but then as he came to spend more and more time at Henry III's court um, in the late 1230s, um, that seems to have been when he met Eleanor, um, Henry III's um, younger um, sister. So. Um, Eleanor had been married before, she'd been married when she was very young to William Marshall, Earl of Pembroke, that's the younger son of the, um, uh, the son of the famous um, William Marshall, and he had died and left her a widow when she was only um, in her teens. Um, she'd actually sworn a vow of chastity after the death of her first husband. Um, Which is quite a cunning thing for a woman to do at that point, isn't it? It is, it is. It's very hard to get behind her motives exactly, but a very plausible explanation for why she did it was to remove herself from the marriage market so that she couldn't be used as a pawn by her, her brothers and other politicians um, in the great political game so that she could retain her independence because widows enjoyed a great deal of legal and financial independence. Um, so she had been um, uh, living under this vow. But then Simon came along 
and the vow of chastity just seemed to go out the window. Do you think he was quite? Um, do you think he was quite a catch? Well, that seems to. We know he was incredible. We don't know actually. We should say we don't know what he looked like at all. We obviously have no depictions from this period. Um, there are no physical descriptions of what he looked like, but we know from a very clear um, impression of his character exactly what he was like in that respect. He was incredibly confident, very intelligent, very sharp, quick-witted, and extremely persuasive in his speech. So in that sense, he probably was a very good catch. So there was a little bit of um, uncertainty about his relationship with Eleanor, wasn't there? And um, I really love this bit, this bit in your book, and it's sort of, did they, didn't they? And I think that he was he was really quite scolded by the king for um, essentially seducing his younger sister as she had taken this vow of chastity. What, what happened? Yes, well, um, not long, not that long after the marriage, um, Henry III and Simon got into a furious argument about money um, and various other things. And Henry's temper just exploded. He started shouting at Simon. Um, and this all took place... Um, uh, around Westminster, um, where the Montfort family had come um, for, for a, a big royal um, ceremony. Which we're not far from right Which now. we're not far from um, right now. Um, and according to one of the big chroniclers of the time, Matthew Paris, Henry shouted at Simon that um, he should never have allowed Simon to come and settle in England. And he regretted... Um, having allowed Simon to marry his sister and he said I only allowed you to marry her because you seduced her before the marriage um, and this was an incredibly shameful thing to say when Simon recalled these words um, many years later he said the king said many hard things to me that were very difficult for me to recall um, now did it happen is that how it happened? We just who can say? We just don't have the evidence. Um, did they actually sleep together before the marriage, or were they perhaps very fond of each other and it was just rather obvious to everybody to the point where perhaps quite a bit embarrassing? Um, we just don't know. Um, but it just doesn't seem implausible at all given the way that it's reported. And the king was initially on the side of the marriage. He supported it, didn't he? Because um, what happens when you claim a vow of chastity, for example, um, and then you want to get married? Yes, well, it's a legally dodgy area. Now, the Montfort, um, now, Eleanor and Simon pointed out that she hadn't taken religious vows exactly. She hadn't become a nun, and that would have completely um, excluded her from, from marriage. Um, a vow of chastity, it was legally a little bit ambiguous um, and actually after the marriage um, Simon went to the papal court to explain to the Pope what had happened and to get a papal document um, legally saying that the marriage was valid and that meant that the, valid could, the marriage couldn't be questioned and that any children they had would certainly be legitimate so the Pope obviously thought it was okay um, not everybody agreed one reason was the vow of chastity, another reason was that it was clandestine. So Henry III allowed the marriage to take place in his private chapel in Westminster 
and he gave the bride away himself. He didn't tell anyone about it. And he ought to have um, asked for the advice of his men before he made such an important decision. Eleanor was um, a, a commodity on the international stage. So um, a king should have asked for the advice of his men before marrying her off. Um, because it was a big international decision, well, a decision of international importance, and every king is expected to ask advice before he makes that kind of decision. Um, and of course, this um, side of things, the clandestine nature of the marriage, probably helps to add weight to the story that there was something a little bit shifty going on as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so at this point... Um, Simon, he's in favour with Henry III, even though even though they sort of have this argument. But what what happens after that that makes him? He was essentially exiled. He he and Eleanor just had to leave the king's presence straight away. Henry at this um, stage was threatening to lock Simon in the tower because he was so angry with him. So they fled and they went back um, to Simon's homeland um, in France. Um, the couple patched things up with the king eventually, and this wasn't going to be the first argument that Simon and Henry had. They had several, and they got progressively worse. But through all of this, a major card that Simon was able to play was his military reputation. It's a slightly curious side of his career because we don't fully understand how he acquired this reputation in the early stages of his career. Um, I've speculated in the book that maybe he'd campaigned um, in Italy with the um, Emperor Frederick II um, on his way back from the papal court. Um, it's difficult to say. But Henry was in very bad need of good military captains. He was engaged in an ongoing conflict with France that wouldn't be solved until 1259 with the Treaty of Paris. Um, he led more than one campaign to France um, during this period and he needed men who he could rely on in the field and who could bring um, knights to his cause and who he could rely on for very good military advice. And Simon was obvious, obviously someone he looked to throughout to supply those things. So his military career is probably one of the things that makes him the most famous. Um, what was his involvement in crusading history, apart from, you know, he had this incredible start in life, actually, mm. growing up in the midst of a crusade. Mm. How did he progress that? Mm. Well, um, crusading, as we've, as we've said, was very important to the Monfort family. And when a new call to the crusade came in the early 1230s, Simon took it up along with his elder brother Amory. Um, Amory, who was still based in France in this time, they both took the crusaders' vow and they were to join um, the expedition known now as the Baron's Crusade, which was launched in 1239. Um, so Amory de Montfort set out with the main force uh, late in 1239. Simon couldn't join him at first because Henry III thought that he needed Simon too much at the English court, so Simon had to wait. Um, but the Baron's Crusade um, was 
one among many crusading disasters in this period, Amory um, led his men in um, late 1239 into a disastrous battle, um, the Battle of Gaza. Um, the large majority of Amory's men and his comrades were killed. He and a few other knights were taken captive and led off to Cairo in chains. So by the time that Simon arrived in the Holy Land in 1240, his brother um, was in captivity. We really don't know, and this is one of the frustrating things about the Barons' Crusade and about Simon's career, we just don't know much about what happened next at all. Mm. Um, we know the names of some of the knights that Simon took with him. We know that he travelled with Eleanor as far as Italy, um, possibly their children too, and before he journeyed on alone with his knights um, to the Holy Land. Um, we know that a fair few of his men never came back. We don't know whether they were killed in battle or by illness, but something clearly happened um, during the course of that campaign that just wasn't recorded by chroniclers. But what we do know is that by 1241, um, Simon had come to be seen by the barons of Jerusalem as one of the greatest men amongst them. And we have a beautiful document preserved in the British Library, which is a letter by the barons of Jerusalem to their nominal um, uh, lord, um, Frederick II, asking if Simon de Montfort can be their regent, if he can be the governor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, how did that come about? We don't quite know. We know that Simon's cousin Philip was there as well, and he was, uh, by this point, um, a major baron in the Holy Land, so perhaps he helped. Um, but clearly, Simon had done something or impressed them to such an extent that they were willing to recognise him as their leader. We don't quite know what, it's very frustrating, but we do know that already by this point in his, what's he now, in his early 30s, he's being recognised as someone who would lead a kingdom. That's quite extraordinary mm. for somebody who was essentially a, um, you know, a middling noble mm. at the, uh, initially. Wow, so... So you, there's this sort of big gap, um, as is the case with much medieval history. Um, what happened on his return after the Crusade? Mm -hmm. Well, on his return um, throughout the 1240s, he was building his career, um, he was building his family. He and Eleanor went on to have several children. Um, the first son was named after the king, Henry. And then we go on to some Montfort family names, um, Guy and Amory, the Montforts. Like I love their, the name Amory, it's like such it's a, a great name. name isn't it? Um, <laughs> the Montforts like their family names. Um, so they went on to build their family. They um, uh, worked on their castle at Odium in Hampshire. Um, they spent time at their great castle at Kenilworth as well in Warwickshire. Um, and that, that period in the 1240s was, was spent um, developing their, their landed wealth and their family um, until um, the early 1250s when Simon was called upon by Henry III once again, um, this time to be governor of Gascony. Um, so Gascony was a territory of the king, kings of England and it was a slightly unruly sort of place. Um, that it was experiencing a lot of lawlessness and turbulence. 
and Henry III needed a governor to go in and take the reins and bring the Gascons to heel, and so he sent Simon. Which is demonstrative of his trust of him, exactly. his skills and his you know, military acumen. Exactly, um, and his sense of authority as mm. well, I think, his sense of weight and presence. So how did things turn sour for Simon? What happened in this rebellion? And why did it happen in the first place? Well, things started to go bad with the Gascony affair because um, Simon did, to a great extent, put down the Gascons' um, lawlessness, but he did it with a very um, hard hand. The Gascons complained to Henry and um, Simon was brought back to England in disgrace and put on, well, it, it should have been a trial. It wasn't really a legal trial. It was a it was an inquiry where people made lots of accusations against him and he defended himself with his friends. And he felt he was very hard done by because the king had sworn to support him as governor of Gascony, he had sworn to stand by him no matter what decisions he made. And also Simon's argument was that the Gascons were just making scurrilous complaints against him. and. Um, See, there was a tremendous sense of injustice at the way he had been treated by the king over Gascony that really got his back up. And that was, that was the first really big rift between them. Um, but by no means was it decisive. Um, the tipping point came um, a few years later in 1258. And that's where the, the great... Um, period of revolution and civil war kicked off. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, essentially in, in the spring of 1258 there was a parliament at Westminster and a group of barons led by Simon and various other nobles marched on Henry III's hall in Westminster and demanded that Henry hand over the reins of government and they would set up a council and they would appoint the great ministers of state, like the chancellor and the treasurer, and they would make all decisions about the government of the kingdom. And Henry could just essentially be a, a figurehead, but have no power at all. Much like how we have today. Exactly, exactly, yes. So, and actually, with in this case particularly, a council making all of the important decisions, but doing so with the support of parliament. So one of the other demands that was going to be made was that Parliament would meet three times a year, come what may, not just when the King wanted Parliament, but always three times a year. Which historically has been a problem, hasn't it? Because the monarch often doesn't call a Parliament frequently enough. Exactly. It's a problem throughout this period and, and later as well, is that if Parliament only meets when the King summons it, that means that all of the people who aren't always at court, you know, the greatest of the great, just don't have a mu don't have much of a say in the in the running of the kingdom, and they don't have a say in lots of the big decisions or middling decisions, and there's just a sense that there's not sufficient transparency in government. So to say we're going to have three parliaments a year, no matter what, was a massive decision, and it sent a big statement about what part Parliament should play in the Kingdom and that decisions should be made with the help of a wider body. So he really got the backup of Henry III by supporting this? Yeah, I mean, 
it was just utterly I mean when when you look back on it, it it's easy as historians isn't it to become so used to the events that you work on and you read about and you think well yes then there was this great storming of the king's hall in 1258 but when you put it into context you think nothing like this had ever happened before it was utterly new and these sorts of demands were utterly new and humiliating, and humiliating the king absolutely humiliating Later, when Henry was able to make complaints about Simon and about the council, he says, you treated me no better than a ward, as in a child who's underage, who's um, been put in, into wardship, which really says a lot about the extent of, of his humiliation. And it's difficult to sort of explain how this happened at all. Henry wasn't an evil king, he wasn't a bad man. Um, he was seen as um, actually not even completely incompetent, let's say of middling incompetence, if not catastrophic incompetence. Um, but there'd been a few um, factors that had really um, caused a lot of discontent amongst the barons. And that was partly Henry's favouritism of a handful of, of people, his protection of um, a handful of people who, um, uh, who disregarded the law, um, his request for taxation when he got it into his head to conquer the Kingdom of Sicily, which nobody ever thought he could ever do, um, which was going to cost a lot of money. And all this took place against the backdrop of a famine. Um, there was an atrocious famine in 1257-1258 that um, we can't say exactly how many people were killed um, as a result but it seems to have um, had a catastrophic, catastrophic effect on many communities and when so many people in the kingdom are suffering at the same time as the king's demanding a lot of money from them that probably helps to cause a lot of discontent and anger against the king as well. So the country has plunged into this civil war. How long does it last for? Well, the, there's not outright war in the first couple of years. 1258-1259, um, the council is in power. Um, the king recovers power in 1260-1261, and his power is swinging back and forth here during this period. The war really breaks out in 1263. Um, Simon leads a campaign, essentially a campaign of violence against Henry III's um, friends and allies across the kingdom and attacks their manners. The Bishop of Hereford is kidnapped from his own cathedral. Um, it's all very dramatic and that's really where the war starts. Um, and it goes on through 1264, through the Great Battle of Evesham in May 1264 when Simon defeated the king and took him prisoner, along with many other family members. And it wouldn't end until August 1265. 1260-1261, power span back and forth. Um, 1263, open war breaks out and Simon le leads a violent campaign across the country. And then things came to a head in May 1264 at the Battle of Lewis. And this, as far as we know, was Simon's first pitched battle, as opposed to a skirmish or a siege. Um, but he did tremendously well, having 
um, trained and, and educated himself very well in this area. He defeated the king uh, at Lewis, took him captive, along with the heir to the throne, Edward, um, and set up a whole new revolutionary regime to govern the kingdom. Um, and this uh, government lasted until the Battle of Evesham in August 1265. Okay, so what happened at the Battle of Evesham? I love this in your book because you actually open your book with mm-hmm. this because it is, you, you sort of, you open your book with the end of Simon, which mm. is this beautiful scene, um, which is so readable and so narrative. It's wonderful. Can you can you go through it? Well, we're helped here as historians by the fact that we have a tremendous source for this battle. It's actually an eyewitness account. I love it when that happens. That <laughs> it's just it's just totally it's whatever historian wishes yeah. for, isn't yeah. it? Um, it was discovered um, a few years ago now, by chance, and it's an account of the Battle of Evesham and actually events surrounding it by a monk of Evesham Abbey. And it was at Evesham Abbey that Simon and his army arrived on the morning of 4th of August 1265. So this writer was there with Simon and his men in the Abbey precincts, listening to and watching everything that went on. So he's able to tell us the conversations that took place. Um, He can't say much about the battle itself because he wasn't on the battlefield. But then he also tells us about the um, atrocious scene that he encountered after the battle. Um, So we know that Simon um, was in the precincts of Evesham Abbey that morning with his army. He'd had to march his men through the night. He was undermanned, he knew that he was outnumbered, and he wasn't attempting to seek a battle. He knew that he wouldn't have a great chance of victory, so he was actually trying to get to safety. But um, the royal army, led by Edward, that's the future Edward I, had also marched through the night to catch up with him. And so in the early hours of the morning, um, Simon was told that Edward's army had arrived. And at that point, he had to make a decision. Um, We could try and get the army out of Evesham, um, either to Kenilworth or to London, um, and we could flee. The problem was, if you attempted that, what's to stop Edward following you? How fast could you run, effectively? Um, Fighting wasn't a good option either, because they would be fighting uphill, and they were outnumbered, and... Simon, being a very good general, knew his chances were very bad indeed. But at this point, I think, he makes the decision that um, he's going to fight, um, knowing that it might indeed be his last battle. So the eyewitness tells us how he spoke to his men, leaving Evesham Abbey, and said, here's your chance to save yourself. There's no shame. You must go now. And he turns to Hugh Dispenser, who's one of his oldest friends, and says, you must save yourself because you will will still be of great value to the kingdom. And so Hugh immediately says to him, no, my lord, no, let it be. Today we shall drink of one cup, just as we have done long since. And they march off up the hill. Um, 
And being outnumbered and, and fighting uphill, um, they were quickly surrounded and cut down. Um, Simon was killed um, on the main battle site, along with Hugh Despenser and, and many other knights, and his eldest son, Henry, as well. Um, many of the, the soldiers um, and knights fled back down the hill to Evesham Abbey, hoping to take sanctuary in the Abbey Church. And Edward's army chased them and broke the laws of sanctuary and cut them down in the church. And it was this, this horrible scene that the eyewitness um, writer from Evesham Abbey um, describes. Wow, it's really powerful. Um, it's a really powerful account of, of the battle and really gives you such a personal personal insight into Simon and his mm -hmm. character and the people who, and the relationships that he'd cultivated with his men. I mean, do you think his rebellion would have ever been a success? I mean, it seems like it was this great theory, this mm -hmm. sort of very liberal world, but actually, but was it ever bound to be successful? Well, we can think of the what-ifs of history, can't we, I think, and there are various scenarios that we can play through in our minds. What if he had won the Battle of Evesham, miraculously? What would have happened then? He would have still had Henry III prisoner. He would probably have had Edward prisoner as well. Could he have survived? Probably not, um, because Henry had a trump card, and that was his queen, Eleanor, who was in France with her sister, the Queen of France, Queen Marguerite, King Louis IX of France as well, who would have done anything to get the throne back for Henry and for Eleanor um, and to restore that family, with papal support as well, because there was a papal legate there as well, um, to give the Pope's backing to the restoration of Henry's power. So even if Simon had won the Battle of Evesham, what would have happened next? I think the best guess is that a, an army raised by Eleanor, Marguerite and Louis, with the Pope's support, would have come to England and invaded. How would it, how would it have gone then? Well, well yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why do you call it the Song of Simon de Montfort? Well, for a couple of reasons, really. Um, there's a great tradition in crusading of the Chanson de Geste, the Songs of the Deeds, mm. where... Um, sort of the, the crusading heroes, men who were seen in their time and by the men who followed as the great heroes, the legends to look up to. And these histories of their feats of arms were written and sung in the feasting halls and used as a way to um, show young knights how they should behave, what standards they should live up to. Um, so it, it speaks to that tradition in part. It also speaks to a very particular um, song of deeds, and that is um, the story of Simon's father, um, leader of the Albigensian Crusade, because that history that was written of the Montfort family in the Albigensian Crusade by Peter of Levaux de Cernay, that was essentially a great song of deeds of Simon the Elder and the Montfort family. And that's what our Simon would have grown up listening to. That's how he would have learned what it was to be, to be a knight, to be a husband, a father, and the leader of a great cause. And that's how he modelled himself, listening to the song of deeds of his father. So I thought it was appropriate 
that um, he had a song in his turn. Perfectly appropriate. Um, and so we are we're sat in Somerset House. Why have you why have you brought me here? Why is this the spot of the hidden history of Simon's Montfort? Well, I suppose we could have gone to Westminster Abbey or Westminster Hall, where the great parliaments of this period took place. But actually, it was this part of the Strand that was also very important, because this is where a lot of the politicians had their townhouses. So a lot of the bishops and also some of the great magnates had houses just around this area of the Strand. Peter of Savoy, of course, who was the Queen's uncle and a great magnate, had his palace here. That's why we now have um, the Savoy Hotel. Um, Simon stayed at the Bishop of Durham's house in 1258 during the course of these parliaments. That's where the Adelphi Theatre now stands. And this whole stretch would have been taken up um, with the lodgings of all of those, those same people. So as much as the events in Westminster Hall and Westminster Abbey, which the chroniclers tell us about, are important, so too are all the comings and goings in the townhouses that took place during the weeks of a parliament. That's where a lot of this, the discussions and meetings and arguments probably took place. A lot of the feasting as well, perhaps. And this little area of the Strand um, was also the scene of quite a famous encounter between Simon and Henry III in 1258. Um, this was during the course of, of the summer months when the council was engaged in putting in place all of its um, measures to uh, reform the kingdom. And Henry III was out on one of his boats sailing up the Thames um, on a sort of pleasure cruise uh, when a storm broke and Henry was famously scared of thunder and lightning. So he demanded that his boats um, come in and dock straight away. And he happened to um, land his boat where Simon was staying in one of these townhouses and Simon came out to meet him and he said to Henry, um, what are you scared of? The storm's already passed. And Henry said, my lord, I fear thunder and lightning above all, but I fear you more than all things. Which is testament really to the relationship between them because um, perhaps Henry was being genuine and that Simon had you know, led this great coup to put him under his control. Um, but also imagine a king saying that to an earl. It says something about both of them, I think. Thank you so much, Sophie. So where can people buy your book? Um, so they will be able to buy it in um, from the 30th of May um, in all good bookshops, I'm sure, and on Amazon. Um, and it's out with Picador on the 30th of May. And what about social media? You're on Twitter, aren't yes, you? Yes, I'm on Twitter at RG1253. Um, F. Uh, it helps at all. That stands for Robert Grostest, twelve fifty-three. I've always wondered that. That's a very, it's a very <laughs> geeky um, medieval Twitter <laughs> reference. One of Simon's um, best friends in the whole world was the Bishop of Lincoln, called Robert Grostest, and he was a great scientist and theologian and philosopher of the day. And I did a lot of my own early research on his work, so my Twitter handle RG twelve fifty-three is in his honour. 
That's lovely. Thanks so much, Sophie, and congratulations on what is a fabulous book. Thanks, Helen. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.